Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Southern Fraud True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners. And there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. We are all familiar with the many true crime tropes. Specifically, it's always the husband. We see this printed on t-shirts and fridge magnets. I once got a one-star review for using It's Always the Husband, ironically, as a title for an episode about a wrongfully convicted husband. I even used quotes And if my reviewer had bothered even reading the synopsis, they would know it was a play on that familiar trope. I learned my lesson about tropes and titles. And why was that guy convicted? Tunnel vision. We often think of tunnel vision as a familiar trope, but that doesn't make it any less true. It's considered a trope because it's a very common defense. We don't just hear it on our podcasts or watch it on Dateline We see it all the time on fictional crime shows. Again, it's a trope for a reason. Today's case explores both of those common tropes. Because, well, it's always the wife, too. Darlene Gentry was accused of murdering her husband, Keith. Within minutes after being called to the scene, police suspected her. But this case goes beyond tunnel vision. We have investigators committing perjury and hiding evidence. We have ineffective counsel. We also have a beautiful woman who the media often make fun of saying, well, she thought because she was a pretty young mother, she would get away with it. Let's flip that around. Is she guilty just because she's attractive? That would be ludicrous, right? To this day, if you watch any popular true crime shows, you will still hear that said about Darlene Gentry that she murdered her husband and thought she could get away with it because of her looks. Spoiler alert, she didn't get away with it. And she might just be innocent. Welcome to episode 154, The Murder of Keith Gentry. Robinson, Texas is a small town of about 12,000 these days. This sleepy college town is 100 miles south of Dallas, and is often named as one of the best places to live in America. It's considered a suburb of Waco because it's located in the Waco Metropolitan Statistical Area. Robinson is in the county of McLennan, where the McLennan Community College is located, one of the three colleges in the Waco area, including Baylor and Texas State Tech. Websites tout Robinson as giving residents a rural feel while still living in town. 
Most residents own their own homes. It's a great place to raise a family with a highly rated public school system, and young professionals flock there for the low cost of living. In 2005, when today's case takes place, Robinson had a little under 9,000 residents. At 6.11 a.m. on November 9th, Darlene Gentry, a 31-year-old mother of three, called 911 to report that she had found her back door open, all the guns missing from the gun cabinet, and her husband, 31-year-old Keith, bleeding on the bed. Police were dispatched to the scene for a possible home invasion. When they arrived, Keith was unconscious but still breathing. He had been shot once in the back of the head. He was rushed off to the hospital in critical condition. Six hours later, Keith was taken off life support, and Robinson, Texas police officially had a murder on their hands. I'm going to pause now for a short commercial break. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Darlene Doskasil was born on November 2nd, 1974 to parents Judy and Amos. She and her two sisters were raised in Cameron, a small town northeast of Austin. Oxygen described Darlene as being the picture of a Texas beauty queen with long blonde hair, bedroom eyes, and a vivacious personality. Her mother Judy said her personality just drew people to her. While attending Yo High School, Darlene was the homecoming queen, a flag captain for the band, the treasurer for Future Teachers of America, and a member of the softball team. After graduating, Darlene went to Texas State Technical College with the goal of being a dental assistant. That's where she met Keith Gentry, who was studying drafting and welding. Darlene told Snapped that the first thing she noticed about Keith were his eyes. He just had the most beautiful eyes. She was immediately smitten. Where Darlene was the epitome of striking blonde with blue eyes, Keith was darkly handsome, in complexion, hair, and chocolate brown eyes. Both had wide smiles with straight white teeth. You can practically see the artificial sparkle of a toothpaste commercial in photos of the two of them. Described as a blessing to all who knew him, Keith was born on September 2, 1974 in Waco, Texas. His parents, Glenda and Wayman, told Paula Zahn that they thought Darlene was the perfect match for their son. But it wasn't just Keith's parents who loved Darlene. It was the whole Gentry family. 
they couldn't help but notice that she acted like Keith hung the moon. Whatever he wanted to do, they did. It was so warming to see Keith and Darlene together. Not only were they a good-looking couple, but they always seemed to have a lot of fun together. After Darlene and Keith graduated from Texas State Tech, Darlene said she wanted to take their relationship to the next level, get married, and start a family. But Keith said he wasn't ready to settle, so the couple split, and Darlene moved to Dallas, where she worked as a dental assistant. While starting fresh in Dallas, Darlene's car was stolen. Homesick and isolated without a car, Darlene quit her job and moved back home. That's when she reconnected with Keith. Time away from Darlene had proven to him that he was ready to settle down and start a family. And the person he wanted to do that with was Darlene. To prove that he was serious about their relationship, Keith proposed. Within months, they were married. Darlene told Snapped that their April 10, 1999 wedding was typical for Texas. They did the barbecue and the dance afterwards. It was a good time, she said. Darlene left the dental field behind, went back to school, and graduated with a nursing degree. Keith started working as an engineer for an electric utility company. The newlyweds moved next door to Keith's parents in the small town of Robinson, located 15 minutes outside of Waco. Sitting on nearly two acres, their new home had four bedrooms and two baths. It came in at just over 2,000 square feet and was right off Highway 77 across the street from Youngblood Park. The couple welcomed three sons, Chase, Cody, and Cade. Darlene said the boys were the light of both of their lives. She felt they were a combination of her and Keith, the best parts of each other. But things in the Gentry household weren't always picture perfect. A lot of the time, they were pretty stressful. For half the week, Keith traveled for work, which left Darlene to raise the boys by herself on top of working as a nurse. Thankfully, Keith's parents were next door and could help out, but it wasn't the same as having a two-parent household, and Darlene, understandably, often felt overwhelmed. Hoping to ease Darlene's stress by traveling less, Keith took an office job. But he hated it. Sitting at a desk all day wasn't for him. According to Keith's parents, that's when the gentry marriage started having issues. They told Paula Zahn that it was obvious when Darlene and Keith were mad at each other because they would be super quiet. You could cut the tension with a knife, Glinda said. When Zahn asked Darlene what the gentry said about her marriage, Darlene said things were happy for the most part. They argued about little things here and there, but what married couples didn't. On that terrible November morning, when Darlene dialed 911, she told the operator, quote, I got up this morning. I was in my son's room because they didn't sleep. My back door was open. My husband's guns are all gone, and um, there's blood on the bed, and he's gurgling. He has pink foam coming out of his mouth, and he's making a god-awful sound. Police and paramedics were dispatched to the scene for a possible home invasion. As officers walked up to the front door, they saw a stack of guns in the yard outside the front door. One officer told another to stand guard and not let anyone near the guns. The other ones went inside the gentry home with their guns drawn, unsure if the assailant was still inside. 
Once the house was cleared, paramedics were allowed inside to treat Keith, who was unconscious but still breathing. One officer could be heard on his body cam stating, quote, This guy is in bad shape. He's got a hole in the head. Keith was rushed by ambulance to the hospital, where doctors worked tirelessly to save his life. At the Gentry House, officers were working under the assumption that Keith had been shot during a home invasion. They asked Darlene if she had any idea who this could have been. She answered tearfully, I have no idea. They asked if she knew which way the person went, and she said, no, I saw nothing. At this point, Darlene and Keith's boys were all upset. They had no idea what was going on and were most likely terrified by all the cops in their home. Keith's parents, Glenda and Wayman, ran over from next door to see what was going on, but the police wouldn't let them inside or tell them anything. After what felt like forever, officers allowed Glenda to take all three boys from the house. That's when they told her Keith had been shot in the back of the head. While processing the scene, officers quickly came to the conclusion that there had never been an intruder. Their first clue was that there was no sign of forced entry to the house or to the gun cabinet. In fact, the front glass hadn't even been broken. It was as if someone used a key to open it, yet all the guns were missing from the cabinet. Officers had found them stacked in the yard right outside the front door. They were convinced that something was off about Darlene's story. They could be heard on their body cams discussing how nothing was adding up. One said, I think she did it. But that was just seven minutes after they arrived on scene. Keith was still in the ambulance on his way to the hospital. Darlene gave investigators consent to search her home. Then she was asked to go to the station to give a formal statement. She wanted to go to the hospital to be with Keith, but decided to help investigators in any way she could. Darlene later told Snapped, Originally, I thought, you know, I want to help them with anything that I could. She let them fingerprint her and swab her DNA. She also gave them permission to record the interview, where she gave her formal statement. Darlene told officers what happened prior to her calling 911. Her youngest son, who was 19 months old, was sick, so she had been sleeping in his room. At some point after 6 a.m., she woke up. As Darlene walked to her bedroom to wake Keith up, she heard a noise and then felt a cool breeze. That's when she noticed the back door and the door to the gun cabinet were both wide open. She immediately realized things weren't right. Darlene yelled out to Keith, but she didn't get an answer. She walked toward the bedroom, yelling as she went. When she got closer, Darlene realized the noise she had heard was coming from Keith. He was gurgling, and pink foam was coming out of his mouth. She looked around and saw blood on the bed. She didn't know what was going on, but she knew something terrible had happened. She told Paula Zahn, I don't know if I was in a state of shock. I guess you could say I was basically freaking out. She was terrified something was going to happen to her boys, so she ran to their room and herded them all into the living room so she could keep them safe. And then she called 911. Detectives questioned Darlene on why she didn't hear the gunshot. She told them that she had the same question, and she had been trying to rack her brain to figure out how she didn't hear it. She said her son's bedroom door was shut, 
and maybe that was why she didn't hear the gunshot. Darlene also said she had woken up at around 5.15 a.m. She heard the dogs barking, but rolled back over and went back to sleep. Detectives wanted to know why Darlene, a nurse, hadn't tried to help her husband. One investigator later told Paula Zahn, quote, Certain people react differently in a traumatic event, but with her training and experience, you would think she would step in there and help, especially her husband. Another told Snapped, You know, even someone that's not trained in medical care, when their spouse is injured, they're going to try to do something to help that person. She made no effort. When asked why she didn't help Keith, Darlene told Snapped, I don't know if I was in a fog or if I was in shock. I don't know what it was. My main thing I remember was just being about the kids. And I think that's fair. Plenty of mothers would not only be concerned about their son's safety, if the killer was still in the area, but also would not want them to see their father bleeding and possibly dying from a gunshot wound to the head. For two hours, Darlene repeated the same story to detectives, never wavering. She later told Paula Zahn that throughout this entire time, she was focused on getting to the hospital to see Keith, but the detectives kept telling her that she was the only possible witness, so she needed to answer their questions. After those two hours of questioning, the detectives were notified that Keith was brain dead, and the hospital wanted to donate his organs. They finally took Darlene to the hospital so she could handle the excruciating decision. Keith was taken off life support and passed not long after. It had only been around six hours since the shooting. I'm going to pause now to hear a word from today's sponsors. As a Southern Fried True Crime listener, you know the world can be a scary place. But no matter what happens out there, home should be the safest place there is for you and your family. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is advanced whole home security that puts you, your home, and your family's safety first. Here's why I love it. I work from home, which means I'm home alone a lot. Since we installed Simply Safe, my husband doesn't worry like he used to. Our cameras are right at his fingertips, and we both feel much safer with Simply Safe's monitoring. Because with 24-7 professional monitoring, Simply Safe's agents take action the moment a threat is detected, dispatching police or first responders in an emergency, even if you're not at home. Simply Safe offers comprehensive protection not only against intruders and burglary, but against expensive home hazards from flooding to fires. Simply Safe uses proprietary video verification technology so that monitoring agents can visually confirm the threat in order to get higher priority 911 dispatch. Monitoring plans are affordably priced at $1 a day with no long-term contract or hidden fees because feeling safe at home shouldn't break the bank. You can customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com slash southernfried. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafe.com slash southernfried. 
Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Burnout is common for all kinds of writers, but especially when I am immersing myself constantly in true crime, it can really take a toll, even though I love what I do. Life can be overwhelming and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, irritability, fatigue, and more. BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing the stress in your life. Therapy is helping me through some of the hardest times in my life, particularly grief, when I lost my mom a couple of years ago. But as you grieve, your life goes on, and it was very helpful to have someone to talk to when I needed it around my schedule. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Southern Fried True Crime listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com Southern. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com Southern. Back at the Gentry House, investigators were processing the scene for evidence. They used dogs and metal detectors to search the property and the surrounding area. It seemed like nothing was missing from the scene. The guns in the cabinet were the only things that had been tampered with inside the house. Other than that, the house looked untouched. Investigators were more convinced than ever that Darlene was lying to them about the intruder. Later that afternoon, Darlene went back to the station to finish up her statement. Investigators asked if she truly couldn't think of anyone who would want to harm Keith or their family. She insisted no, that Keith was well-liked by everyone. They asked if the marriage had any problems, and Darlene said no. They only argued over money, which is something every married couple does. She added, He has no girlfriends. I had no boyfriends. We were fine on that. Well, maybe no girlfriends or boyfriends that she knew of. More on that later. Investigators told her that she was their prime suspect. Her story didn't add up to what the crime scene showed. But Darlene insisted she was innocent. The more questions they asked, the more upset Darlene got. She asked if things were getting to the point of needing an attorney. She told the detectives, I haven't done anything. I loved my husband, and I would have never done anything to take him away from his boys, ever. She said she was being upfront and honest with them. She had gone over her story five different times, never changing the details. Darlene said she knew the detectives were just doing their jobs, but she had never been in a situation like this before, and she was starting to get extremely nervous. Darlene told Snapped that one of the detectives then accused her of playing games. It was at that point that she stopped and said she wanted an attorney. Detectives put the interview on hold, and Darlene called an attorney who told her to stop talking to the detectives. They also told her investigators needed to stop searching her house until they had a warrant. Darlene followed her attorney's advice and walked out of the jail. Before Darlene called off the search, investigators had been able to lift fingerprints and collect some evidence. Detective Mike Noel located the most valuable piece of physical evidence in the kitchen trash can. Buried under assorted trash, including some hamburger helper, Noel found two medical latex gloves turned inside out. Located in the middle finger of one of them was a small caliber shell casing. 
a Lieutenant Tracy O'Connor, later told Paula Zahn that Noel called him from the Gentry house and said he had found a spent shell casing inside the trash can. Noel thought it might be connected to Keith's murder, so he was calling to find out if anyone had figured out what caliber bullet may have been used. O'Connor spoke with a doctor, who said it would have been small. Investigators spoke with Keith's father, who said a few years earlier he had given his son a nine-shot twenty-two caliber revolver as a gift. Investigators looked over the list of guns found in the yard and didn't see a twenty-two. It was missing. Figuring the twenty-two was the murder weapon, investigators searched the house and property from top to bottom but didn't find it. An autopsy soon revealed that it was a twenty-two that was used to kill Keith Gentry. Then, investigators received word that fingerprints found on one of the guns in the yard and on the gun cabinet belonged to Darlene. More sure than ever that Darlene was the killer, investigators continued looking into the Gentry marriage to see if there were any clues there. Texas Ranger Steve Foster told Paula Zahn that they found out the couple was having money problems. Darlene had a habit of spending money on things other than bills. Keith's parents told investigators that on the night of his murder, Keith confronted Darlene about her spending habits. The discussion was heated, and later, Keith went to his parents' house to vent. He told them Darlene had taken out a bunch of credit cards without telling him and had maxed them out. When Paula Zahn asked Darlene about these allegations, she said the discussion wasn't heated. She and Keith sat down and had the most civil conversation they had probably ever had in their entire marriage. They ended up deciding to consolidate the credit cards into one payment to deal with the situation. Investigators kept digging and found that Keith had two life insurance policies, which totaled around $750,000. It seemed like the perfect motive for Keith's murder. On November 14th, Keith's funeral was held at Meadowbrook Baptist Church. His father described Darlene's demeanor to Snapped. I never saw her actually break down. She had tears in her eyes and mourned, but not like someone like that should have done. I don't think we need to rehash how everyone grieves differently, particularly after a violent crime. It's perfectly reasonable that Darlene would still be in shock, especially after being considered a suspect. Then, lab test results came back from the kitchen trash gloves. According to Detective Noel, quote, Two DNA profiles were recovered, one belonging to the victim, Keith Gentry, and to the other, Darlene Gentry. The same latex gloves also possessed gunshot residue. Because the gloves had been turned inside out, with a shell casing in one of the fingers, investigators theorized that Darlene had been wearing the gloves when she shot Keith. They said she reached down, picked up the shell casing off the ground, then rolled the gloves off leaving the casing in one of the now inside-out gloves. When Darlene heard this theory, she couldn't help but wonder why investigators thought she would take time to get rid of the twenty-two revolver before police arrived, but not the shell casing and gloves. It didn't make any sense to her. That makes no sense to me either. And the fingerprints investigators had found on one of the guns in the yard and on the gun cabinet? Well. She lived in the house, so yeah, her fingerprints were going to be everywhere on almost everything. 
Investigators knew all their evidence was circumstantial, but added together, it was enough to charge her with Keith's murder. On November 28th, she was arrested. At this point, Keith's parents believed their daughter-in-law to be innocent, so they arranged to have her bailed out. They told Snapped, we had a 100% belief in her that she didn't do anything. This would be the same in-laws who didn't think she cried enough at her husband's funeral. It's possible biased hindsight is at play here when they complained about her lack of grief at the funeral. Not long after her release, Darlene called a man named Robert Pavelka to see if he knew of any houses for sale or property she could purchase and then build on. Darlene really wanted to get out of the house where her husband had been tragically murdered. Robert told her he actually had some land near the small community of Axtell for sale. It even came with a pond. He later testified that Darlene seemed excited about the pond. She said Keith had always wanted a place where he could take their three sons fishing. She told Robert she would take the property. A few weeks later, Robert met up with Darlene so they could sign the paperwork. She asked Robert if he could fill in the pond for her. She and her mom had discussed it, and she realized it was too deep for the boys. Robert said he found this request odd. The whole reason Darlene had been interested in the property in the first place was because of the pond. So he contacted a friend at the McLennan County Sheriff's Office, who put him in touch with the Texas Rangers. After hearing from Robert, the Rangers immediately thought Darlene had thrown the revolver in the pond and now wanted to cover it up. The Rangers obtained a warrant to search the pond. On January 4th, a dive team found the revolver that had been missing from the Gentry home. But then, investigators realized they had made a mistake. They may have the murder weapon, but they still didn't have anything linking Darlene to the revolver. No evidence that she had fired it, thrown it in there, or anything. To be very clear, they did not video themselves diving for the gun or take photos and the gun could not be matched with ballistics to the bullet that killed Keith. The gun, without a link to Darlene, was not enough for a conviction. They needed to connect her in order to seal the deal. On the same day they found the revolver, the Rangers asked Robert to come to the station. They wanted him to call Darlene from his cell phone and tell her he was willing to fill in the pond. Robert told her that before he could fill in the pond, he would have to drain it first. Darlene said that was fine, but later that day she called back and asked if she could be there when the pond was drained. It was exactly what investigators were hoping she would say. That night, the rangers set up a surveillance camera in some nearby bushes to see if Darlene or anyone else showed up at the pond to get the gun before the pond was drained. But no one showed up, so the rangers had Robert call Darlene back the next day to tell her he had not been able to drain the pond the night before because the pump was broken. He said he was going to try again that evening, and she was welcome to come by then. This time, Darlene showed up. It was still broad daylight when she pulled up in her car. The rangers watched as she walked towards the pond in knee-high boots. She waded out into the shallow water and started probing the bottom with a stick. According to investigators, she was looking in the exact same area the dive team had previously located the gun. But since they didn't video the retrieval of the gun, we have to take their word for it, I guess. 
Darlene looked for 20 minutes, then left empty-handed. The whole thing had been caught on tape. Investigators felt the video was the final piece of evidence they needed. They were officially ready for trial. Opening statements begin on February 6, 2007. Darlene's attorneys had tried to get a change of venue, but were unsuccessful. The prosecution summarized the story Darlene had told police. An intruder broke in, unlocked the gun cabinet without breaking the glass, took the guns out, stacked them neatly in the front yard, then shot Keith, all while Darlene slept. The prosecution said that's not what happened to Keith. The truth was that Darlene shot Keith while he slept. Then she staged the scene to look like an intruder committed the act before she called 911. The prosecution pointed out all of the suspicious details from the case. She was sleeping down the hall from the bedroom her husband was shot in, yet she didn't hear the gun go off. During the 911 call, Darlene said a lot of things to the operator before she mentioned the fact that her husband needed help. Furthermore, Keith was still alive when paramedics arrived. It was incredibly suspicious that Darlene, a nurse, never tried to help her husband, they said. The prosecution admitted that the case was circumstantial, but when you combine all of the evidence together, they said it was clear that Darlene killed Keith for the insurance money. Plus, who else could have done it? Keith was well-liked, and there was no sign of an intruder. Detective Noel testified that besides Darlene, there was only ever one other suspect or person of interest, and he had been quickly ruled out. That person was Brent McCovey, the husband of one of Darlene's friends named Sarah. There's nothing in the media to suggest why Brent was a suspect, but according to one of Darlene's later appeals, Keith was having a physical affair with Sarah and or Brent. I'll get to the and or part soon. Because love triangles often lead to murder, investigators looked into the possibility that Brent murdered Keith, but he for whatever reason, was ruled out. I actually think we know the reason, but I'm saving that. Sorry, I know your back pocket is getting heavy already. The prosecution told the jury that physical evidence found at the scene proved Darlene was the killer. The fingerprints on the guns in the yard and on the gun cabinet and the kitchen trash gloves. In addition, the prosecution had that video of Darlene wading out into the pond. The defense did not call any witnesses. According to Snapped, Darlene's defense team seemed confident about her chances for an acquittal. With her good looks and Keith's family behind her, she presented well, and the prosecution's case seemed circumstantial at best. But I don't think they were confident at all. They lost some crucial rulings and seemed as if they just gave up at the end. The defense had tried to get Robert Pavelka's statements about his conversations with Darlene thrown out. Their argument was that Darlene had obtained counsel and was no longer speaking to authorities at the time he spoke with her about the pond. Because Robert was working with the police, his phone calls to her were technically coming from the police, which violated her rights. But the judge disagreed because Darlene wasn't in custody and she wasn't being interrogated. The defense used the same argument to try and keep the pawn video out of court, but the judge ruled it as admissible. The Rangers didn't entrap Darlene. They were simply investigating the case. An appeals court later wrote 
that the only thing the Rangers were guilty of was, quote, excellent police work. Darlene's attorneys wanted to introduce a third-party defense. Someone else had killed Keith, not Darlene. But their motion was denied. Their plan was to introduce the medical records of Keith and Sarah and Brent McCovey. The records showed that all three of them had the same strain of genital herpes. I'm going to pause now to hear a final word from today's sponsors. Hundreds of millions of dollars gone. Some of the richest people on the planet, giant companies, banks, all conned out of their fortunes by one man, a man that many of his own victims call a genius, Gabert Sheikli. From Wondery and Pineapple Street Studios comes the new true crime podcast, Persona, The French Deception, the unbelievable story of one of the greatest criminal masterminds of the 21st century. For more than 10 years, Sheikli tapped into his victims' deepest fears, appealed to their sizable egos, and ultimately pioneered a scam that took over the world. But his story is more than just a tale of criminal genius. It's a story about the moment we're living in right now, the golden age of scammers and the power of seduction. But what happens when the fantasy we've been lured into finally crumbles away? Listen to find out. Follow Persona, The French Deception, wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Little Spoon is one-stop shopping for healthy, easy meals and snacks for your baby, toddler, and big kid delivered right to your door. Little Spoon isn't just convenient, but affordable and flexible. You can pause, modify, cancel, or skip at any time. Unlike the processed food for kids on grocery shelves, Little Spoon uses organic ingredients and makes everything fresh. Little Spoon takes you through every eating stage from baby food to toddler and big kids, taking you through the weaning stage into the big kids. Years. The baby food goes from stage one smooth, single ingredients through to complex, textured blends as your little one ages. And their toddler and kid plates are really cool. I had a super picky eater who lived on mac and cheese, and Little Spoon's mac and cheese has hidden butternut squash and carrots in it, making this kid's classic a favorite healthy dish. Little Spoon is legit delicious. I tried the cookies and cream smoothie, and it tastes like a yummy milkshake, even with all the healthy and clean ingredients. Ingredients. And the best part? The price is right. With kids' meals under $5 and baby food, smoothies, and snacks under $3, it makes trying Little Spoon easy. Go to littlespoon.com and enter code SOUTHERNFRIED at checkout to get 50% off your first Little Spoon order. That's littlespoon.com, code SOUTHERNFRIED. The defense wanted to tell the jury that Keith was having an affair with Sarah and or Brent, which could be a motive for murder but the judge said the records were irrelevant to the case. After their motions were denied by the judge, Darlene's defense rested without putting on any case. They called no witnesses, including Darlene. Even the media was shocked by this. Darlene later claimed the defense wouldn't let her testify. And she didn't know they weren't gonna put on any case. She was as surprised as anyone when her attorney stood up and said they rested their case as well after the prosecution rested. On February 8th, after deliberating for five hours, the jury found Darlene guilty. According to KXXV, she was unemotional as the verdict was read and took off her earrings before being taken into custody. 
Darlene later explained to Paula Zahn that she was in shock throughout the entire trial. She had no idea what was going on. The next day, the jury met to decide what sentence Darlene should receive. She faced between five years and life in prison. The prosecution told the jury not to let Darlene's good looks or the fact that she had three sons sway their decision away from giving her the maximum sentence. In the end, she was sentenced to 60 years. After her conviction, the grandparents dueled it out in court for custody of the three gentry boys, who had been living with Keith's parents since the shooting. Wayman and Glenda wanted custody, for Darlene to lose all of her parental rights, and they didn't want the boys to visit Darlene in prison. Darlene's mom, Judy, wanted custody, and she also wanted to bring the boys to visit their mom in prison, which she had already done numerous times without permission from Wayman and Glenda. Eventually, both sides came to an agreement that Wayman and Glenda would take custody because the children had already been living with them. As part of the deal, Judy was awarded the right to one weekend visit a month, and Wayman and Glenda dropped their demand that Darlene lose her parental rights. However, they did win the no-visitation part. Later, a court order was put into place to keep Darlene from contacting her sons. That ruling seems contradictory. So Darlene did not lose her parental rights, and yet she was ordered to have no contact with her sons? I mean, just for example, Darlie Routier, who viciously murdered two of her own sons, still has a relationship with her surviving son. Darlene appealed her conviction on numerous grounds, including that the video of her wading into the pond should have never been admitted for the same reason why Robert and Darlene's conversations should not have been admitted. She had been the victim of entrapment. In their response to Darlie's appeal, the prosecution said that even without the pond video, the jury would have convicted Darlene. The video was just icing on the cake which we know is not true because it's why they put Robert Pavelka up to the sting operation. The prosecution had the kitchen trash gloves and shell casing, plus all the holes in Darlene's story. However, and this is extremely important, they didn't actually have the gloves. They only had the testimony of Detective Noel, who claimed he found them. They had no photos, and he had no other witnesses to say they saw him find the gloves. This is an egregious break in the chain of custody, not to mention how the hell do you enter a piece of evidence that you no longer possess? In June 2008, Darlene's conviction was upheld and the Court of Criminal Appeals did not consider her follow-up appeal. She then filed a writ of habeas corpus, alleging that she did not get a fair trial for multiple reasons, including ineffective counsel, false testimony from state witnesses, and several other important points. She was basically alleging that the police and Robert Pelveca committed perjury. In 2010, the Court of Criminal Appeals ordered hearings to investigate Darlene's claims. Judge Ralph Struther, who had overseen her trial, would be in charge of the writ hearings. Darlene then complained that he should be removed because he had shown bias against her. Struther had verbalized that he didn't find her counsel to be ineffective, which was one of her grounds for deserving a new trial. If Struther had already made up his mind 
then how could he give her a fair hearing? Struther declined to recuse himself, so Judge Bert Richardson ruled he must step down. Richardson was then appointed to hear Darlene's writ arguments, which were held in 2011. At the hearings, Darlene's attorneys laid out all the reasons why Darlene deserved a new trial. Detective Mike Noel had included incorrect and misleading information in Darlene's arrest warrant affidavit. Numerous state witnesses gave false testimony, Darlene's trial counsel was ineffective, and the state withheld evidence. Let's start with Noel and the kitchen trash gloves and shell casing. Based on what appeal counsel found, it was unclear who found the shell casing and if they had ever been found at the crime scene. At trial, Noel had testified that he found the gloves in the kitchen trash can, buried under assorted trash, including hamburger helper. He handed the gloves off to analyst Blake Gertz, who subsequently found a shell casing in the middle finger of one of the gloves. But Gertz testified that he did not find the shell casing in the glove. It was someone else. Side note, I noticed while watching On the Case with Paula Zahn that Lieutenant Tracy O'Connor said Noel called him from the Gentry house and said he had found a spent shell casing inside the trash can. Noel thought it might be connected to Keith's murder, so he was calling to find out if anyone had figured out what caliber bullet may have been used. So who was telling the truth? Had the casing even been found at the crime scene? According to Darlene's attorneys, Detective Noel went through the trash when no one was around. There are no pictures of the gloves in the trash or anything else to prove that he found the casing or the gloves in the trash can. There were, however, photos of literally everything else of importance in the house. Once again, there is no chain of evidence. The gloves should have been kept out of trial along with the casing. Darlene believes someone planted the shell casing, either Noel or the analyst. She said investigators were convinced she had killed her husband and wanted a conviction. I'm going to pause now for a short commercial break. There was proof in the body cam footage that investigators very quickly thought she was guilty. Seven minutes after police arrived, an officer can be heard on his body cam saying, I think she did it. Another replied, Something ain't right here, ma'am. I'm telling you. Mind you, these were patrol officers, not detectives, the first police on the scene. And these guys were already jumping to conclusions before Keith Gentry had even made it to the hospital. But that's not all when it comes to the kitchen trash gloves. If you recall, Detective Noel wrote in the arrest warrant affidavit that the gloves, quote, also possessed gunshot residue. At a writ hearing, Noel admitted that the gloves were, in fact, never tested for gunshot residue. He said there had been no need to send the gloves off for testing because the glove would obviously come back as positive since the shell casing was found inside. That's not how this works. You don't get to decide that gunshot residue is in a glove without getting it tested. This is ludicrous. The prosecution knew the gloves had not been sent off for testing, but they kept that information to themselves, which means they lied as well. But Darlene's defense was ineffective for not double-checking that the gloves were tested. Also, 
during Darlene's trial, it was discovered that the gloves had gone missing. They were nowhere to be found. Judge Struther told the jury that, quote, both the state and the defense have seen and examined the gloves. That's not how physical evidence works either. At the writ hearings, one of Darlene's trial attorneys testified that this was not true. The defense had not seen the gloves, but they didn't admit it at the time because they thought it would look bad if they had not seen a piece of key evidence. So let's get this straight. Not only did the state not even have the gloves, which were still somehow admitted as invisible evidence, but the defense was too embarrassed to admit they never saw the gloves. Then, Detective Noel magically found the kitchen trash gloves during the time of Darlene's writ hearings. Supposedly, they had never been transferred from the state crime lab back to the district attorney's office. Now, the gloves were tested in four locations. There was no gunshot residue found in three of the four test sites. In the fourth, only one particle was found. The state's own expert testified that the results were inconclusive because that speck could have been the result of contamination during the testing. The state's expert said he would expect to see a lot more gunshot residue if the gloves were actually worn during the shooting, and he would expect even more if the shell casing had actually been found inside the glove. So just to recap, there was zero proof the glove with the shell casing had been found in the kitchen trash. It seemed even less likely a shell casing had ever been inside it. Remember, the gloves had been a major reason why Darlene had been convicted, and now we know they hadn't even been tested for gunshot residue. Detective Noel had lied in his warrant. The gloves, however, were tested for DNA. Gertz, the state's DNA analyst, testified during Darlene's trial that the only DNA found belonged to Darlene and Keith. But according to Darlene's appeal attorneys, this is false. The truth was that on both gloves, Gertz found DNA profiles consistent with Darlene and Keith. But on just one of the gloves, Gertz also found DNA from an unknown contributor, the 12 allele at the D8 locus position. He had even written that in his report. But that's not what he said in his testimony. In fact, he blatantly lied and said that, quote, the D8 locus was a glitch. Gertz told the jury he could not put that on his report. He could only tell them that info during trial. To cap it off, in closing statements, the prosecution told the jury, quote, The DNA on the gloves that were in the bottom of the kitchen trash matches nobody else but the defendant. Which was just a blatant lie considering Gertz testified that he found both Darlene and Keith's DNA on them. Now. Let's get into Robert Pavelka, the man who owned the property with the pond. At trial, he testified that between December 15th and January 30th, he had at least four phone calls with Darlene, including one on January 4th, when he was asked by detectives to set up a sting by telling Darlene he had to drain the pond. Darlene's useless trial counsel did not investigate or subpoena Robert's phone calls. If they had, they would have found that he had no proof of any calls with Darlene after December 15th. The most important thing this lack of evidence proves is that Robert lied on the stand when he said he called Darlene from his own phone on January 4th after the revolver was found. 
And if he lied about the phone call, what else was he lying about? The pond video was a key piece of evidence used to convict Darlene. And why would he lie? Well, there is a small detail buried in her 2017 appeal. Robert Pavelka had pending domestic abuse charges when he called his buddy to report on Darlene Gentry. To my knowledge, those charges went nowhere. And it's even more interesting when you note that his wife voluntarily took up for Darlene, saying Darlene had told Robert as early as December 1st that she wanted the pond covered because she was worried about her children being so close to a pond. Remember, her boys were all under the age of five years, with her youngest being 19 months old at the time. Darlene claimed her trial attorneys prevented her from testifying. This meant the jury never got to hear why she waded out into the pond. She had two explanations. She wanted to test the pond's depth because she was worried it was too deep for the boys, and even more importantly, she had heard rumors that someone threw the gun in there. You might think rumors are silly, but mind you, this is a small town and this was a hot case. Rumors would have been flying everywhere. Darlene told Paula Zahn that Robert agreed to meet her at the pond on the day she was recorded. She was going to find the gun she had heard had been thrown in there. In her mind, she thought if she found it and someone witnessed her finding it, the police would stop looking at her. When Robert didn't show, she decided to look on her own, even though she later realized it was a dumb move. Robert claimed he never agreed to meet her there. I really wondered why this guy would lie. What did he have to gain until I caught that line about the domestic abuse charges? And one more thing about Robert. He went to his buddy at the sheriff's department to rat out Darlene because she wanted to fill in the pond. But here's the thing. She called him as a developer and realtor, asking about houses or property, and he was the one who told her about the pond. She did not call him and say, Hey, Mr. Pavelka, you don't by chance own that property with a pond out by Axtell, do you? It's like the chicken and the egg. Which came first? Even Pavelka said that Darlene became more interested in the property initially when she found out it had a pond, because she still wanted to honor her husband's dream of owning property where his sons could fish. It was only after worrying it over with her mother that she changed her mind. And sure, she could have chosen a different piece of land, but maybe she just liked this one. Her explanation about checking the pond because of rumors admittedly seemed dumb to her later. It sounds dumb to us too. And if you watch the video, she doesn't check very far. Cops claim that is because she looked exactly where they found it and when it wasn't there, she walked off. But then we only have their word for it. They lied about so much, and they failed to video or photograph their retrieval of the gun, once again breaking the chain of evidence. Why should we believe them? Remember, that gun could not be tied to the bullet or shell casing in Keith's murder. Haley and I talked about this pond issue. We both thought that if she was worried cops would find that gun, she sure didn't look very hard or very far out into the pond. It's actually a very small pond, but still, if you're hiding a gun, aren't you going to toss it out as far as you can? In the video, she clearly barely walks up into her knees. The water doesn't appear to go over her boots. 
and who dumps a gun at the end of a damn pond. But possibly the biggest bombshell of Darlene's writ hearings was the testimony about Sarah and Brett McCovey. At trial, Detective Noel testified that the only other suspect or person of interest in Keith's murder was Brent. According to Darlene's appeal attorneys, this was not true. Based on the evidence they found, Sarah was, in fact, seriously considered a person of interest and a suspect. But because Detective Noel never brought this up, the jury didn't hear anything about Sarah. The truth is, Sarah was definitely a suspect, but Brent never was, so that part was technically true. Sarah was questioned at least four times, and during one of those times, she appeared extremely nervous. She also refused to take a polygraph. After her fourth interview, Sarah reached out to a friend in law enforcement, Agent Mark Garrick of the Texas Department of Public Safety. She voiced concerns over the questioning. Garrick notified the Robinson police about Sarah, and they asked him to record their conversations. The next time they spoke, Sarah told Garrick she was worried what evidence authorities had against her. She thought her DNA could be found at the scene. She also admitted that her cell phone had been found at the crime scene. She explained to Garrick that it ended up there because she and Keith had swapped phones. She asked Garrick if police could find texts or calls on her phone. Sarah told Garrick that detectives accused her of knowing more than she was telling them. Garrick informed Sarah that if she didn't talk to the police, they would probably find her more suspicious. Sarah asked Garrick how police could prove Darlene murdered Keith without finding the murder weapon. She added, At this point, good luck finding the weapon. Sarah also admitted that she knew where the revolver and the key to the gun cabinet were kept. She also said Darlene could have never pulled the trigger to kill Keith. The jury did not hear these tapes because they were never played. After all, Detective Noel had testified Sarah was not a suspect. Now, these tapes were available to the defense. They had been listed on the evidence sheet. However, because they weren't notified that Sarah was a suspect, Darlene's lazy-ass attorneys did not listen to them. So the jury never heard about Sarah. They didn't hear that her cell phone had been found at the scene, that she had been interviewed four times by police, that she was possibly sleeping with Keith. None of it. By the way, where is the evidence that the police bagged a mysterious cell phone? Did it disappear with the kitchen trash gloves? Maybe it's still in that pond. Yes, you are literally hearing my eyes roll. The defense testified at the writ hearings that if they had listened to the tapes, quote, it would have changed their trial strategy entirely. It would have changed the whole tenor of the case. But that's not all. Only after Darlene's trial did the defense find out that Sarah was the only person, other than Darlene, whose DNA was swabbed. However, it was never tested against any evidence. If it had been, investigators would have found that some of Sarah's DNA profile matched the unknown profiles found on two pieces of evidence, a rubber latex glove found by one of the gentry's neighbors and a pair of rubber gardening-style gloves found on Robert's property near the pond. I repeat, near the pond where the police found the gun. 
Around a month after Keith's murder, one of Gentry's neighbors found a latex glove in a ditch across the street from his house. The incompetent defense found out about the ditch glove just before trial. They did ask to have it tested, but the state argued the defense had six months to request testing, and it was too late. So the glove was not tested prior to trial. During the writ hearing, the ditch glove was finally tested. The analyst reported that she was unable to obtain a full DNA profile from the glove. However, the defense's expert found a DNA profile, including a 14 allele at locus D19. Keep this in your back pocket for just a second. Sorry, but I did let you empty your pockets earlier. The glove was in bad condition and was cracking and crumbling during testing. That's why the analyst had not been able to obtain a profile. If it had been tested earlier, they may have been able to recover more of the DNA. Several months after Keith's murder, Robert had found two rubber gardening-style gloves on his property near the infamous pond. He handed them over to investigators. For the writ hearings, the gloves were tested. The state's DNA analyst, Blake Gertz, testified that Sarah was excluded as a match. According to Darlene's appeal attorneys, Gertz's testimony wasn't exactly true. He had found a partial profile on the pawn gloves. The profile was likely a mixed one, involving a male and female. Here's the thing. The partial profile was found on a 14 allele at locus D19, just like the ditch glove. Darlene's DNA profile does not include those elements, but Sarah McCovey's does. When the defense analyst compared the DNA found on the pond glove and Sarah's DNA, they found enough shared alleles to be considered statistically significant. Let me repeat that. There is a possible partial DNA match to the woman who police claimed was never a suspect. A woman who they had questioned four times, who acted nervously, who admitted her cell phone was left at the scene, who was worried her DNA was found at the scene, and who finally shared the same strand of genital herpes with her husband and Keith Gentry. Haley and I went back and forth over if we should share that in the 2017 appeal, the herpes was specified as anal herpes. We worried over that because we could only find it in that one document. But let me brag on Haley a little. This information is not in the Paula Zahn episode or Snapped or any other documentary we watched. In fact, Sarah and Brent are not mentioned at all. It is just a given in all those shows that Darlene is guilty. One episode is called Beauty Queen Killer. It's pretty clear why those shows were interested in Darlene's case, and it was not to expose the problems that favor her innocence. Haley is the one who dug this all up in Darlene's writ and appeal. I watched the shows as I was writing my parts of this episode and noticed they are never mentioned. But it does make you wonder, who was actually having the affair? If Keith was having a sexual relationship with Brent McAvoy, that certainly gives Sarah motive. I would argue stronger motive than some credit card bills. Why would Sarah exchange phones with Keith? Is it more likely she accidentally left her phone there during the murder? We certainly can't ask Keith, can we? Or maybe Sarah and Keith were having the affair, and one or both of them were sleeping around, 
therefore spreading the STD to Brent McAvoy. It's not like anal sex is only for gay or bisexual men. What would Sarah's motive be then? Did Keith break off the affair and she was angry? And I would like to point out, whomever was having the affair with Keith may have had a key and known where the key to the gun cabinet was. It would explain a lot. And remember, Sarah already admitted she knew where the gun to the key cabinet was. Now, let's be fair and look at the flip side. Maybe Darlene found out about all of this and it was her real motive. But that still begs the question, how did she get rid of the gun? I know we are dealing with Keystone cops here who lost and missed evidence, but they did search pretty hard for that gun. Which puts me back on the Robert Pavelka merry-go-round of how did Darlene toss the gun in a pond on one of his properties, rush back to call 911, and then a month later she calls and casually asks him if he has any properties and is delighted to find out he owns the property where she hid the gun. And yes, that was the sound of my eyeballs literally rolling out of my head and hitting the floor this time. In July 2017, six years after the writ hearings were held, Judge Burt Richardson recommended that the Court of Criminal Appeals deny Darlene's request for a new trial. Based on what he had heard at the hearings, she didn't deserve a new trial. She was guilty. The pawn video proved it. It had taken so long for him to announce his decision because he had a really full schedule and there had been a lot of turnover within the district attorney's office. In November 2017, the Court of Criminal Appeals officially denied Darlene's request for a new trial and her application for a writ of habeas corpus. Quote, The court concluded that even if trial counsel had been made aware of the interviews of Sarah McCovey and the other facts and circumstances involving Sarah McCovey, this court finds that applicant has not met her burden of showing that the outcome of the trial would have been different. The court added that Darlene couldn't provide any rebuttal or explanation for why she was searching through the pond. Her appeal attorneys brought up the fact that the court ignored all the evidence that showed Robert Pavelka lied on the stand, meaning the video itself needs to be re-evaluated. Well, who could have provided a rebuttal? Darlene herself. I told you she later said she wanted to testify, but her attorneys wouldn't let her. Not that she would have been aware of her rights, but she had a constitutional right to testify per Rock v. Arkansas from 1987, which declared the right to testify to be a fundamental right. We are constantly complaining that defendants or even convicted persons are let off on technicalities. That's often infuriating to lay people, though the court system must play fair. Well, that works both ways. Or at least, it should. Twice in Darlene's appeals, two points were denied because her counsel did not make requests in a timely manner. I would call that a technicality that is no fault of Darlene's, and I would certainly call that ineffective counsel, which was argued in her 2017 appeal, though it was denied. Today, Darlene is incarcerated in the Murray Women's Prison, located in Gatesville, Texas. She's eligible for parole in February 2037. If she is never paroled, she will be released in February 2067 
at the age of 93. Haley and I did not find any active appeals, but that does not mean Darlene isn't still trying. What it does mean is that she still has a high hill to climb. I am reminded of another familiar trope you see on crime shows that I specifically recently noticed on the Netflix show Lincoln Lawyer, that it is much easier to win an acquittal than it is to win an appeal. The wheels of justice grind very slowly once you've been granted your speedy trial. And God help you if you are a pretty blonde mother in Texas. And yes, that was my eye you hear winking this time. This is one I think the Innocent Project should look at, not that other blonde mother. But Darlene isn't on death row. In all seriousness, if they did get this wrong, they took a mother from three little boys. Those boys weren't even allowed to visit her. It was cruel to Darlene, and it was cruel to her sons. I hope that now that they are all of legal age, that they have decided on their own to visit their mother. This case goes beyond reasonable doubt for me. It goes beyond tunnel vision. And worst of all, Keith Gentry's real killer may just have gone free. Southern Fried True Crime is hosted and produced by me, Erica Kelly. Today's episode was written and researched by myself and Haley Gray. Southern Fried's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio, and the original graphic art is by Coley Horner. Thank you to Gabby McCray and Megan for suggesting this case. It was uh, eye-opening. Okay, that was my last eyeball joke. And sorry for stretching out your back pockets so badly. If you have any case suggestions, please visit my website, southernfriedtruecrime.com and go to the listener suggestion tab and if you have submitted a case suggestion in the last few months please resubmit it on the website this is the best way for me to get those little known cases y'all always send me please remember that i do not accept case suggestions on social media private messages with three platforms to manage it's really overwhelming for me i hope you understand but please do come join our facebook group southern fried true crime fans discussion group where we swap recipes, worship Dolly Parton, and share memes. I much prefer spending my social media time in our lovely group. We do, of course, discuss true crime, not just Southern fraud, but all kinds. It is still very much a Southern lifestyle group. Our group is a safe and fun corner of Facebook, and by God, we mean it when we say no shit ass is allowed. It's not just a motto, it's how we run the group. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe, and please tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on all large platforms like iHeart, Stitcher, and Spotify. Until next time, I'll stop rolling my eyes. Thanks so much for listening, and y'all take care. <laughs>